0: Family, it's my pleasure to to bring Ron up. He's a great friend, and great mentor, yeah! and, and that a boy. Now I owe him 20 bucks. This is so good. Uh, this is awesome. Oh Have a good oh one, thanks.
1: Ron. <laughs> uh, thanks. <laughs> yeah, that was my boy over there. Um, his allowance is contingent upon cheers. <laughs> Except we don't give you an allowance, do you? No. <laughs> Um. Church, we're having a conversation for a couple of weeks uh, about the qualities and characteristics of God. We've called it Erasing God because rather than uh, just having a conversation about what are some of the good, key, important, foundational qualities of God and what do they mean to us, we're also considering some of those qualities and characteristics that maybe we've picked up along the way that are untrue of God. Uh, Undoubtedly, through maybe trauma or uh, cultural things going on, or maybe something in your family, you have come to believe, I have come to believe some things about God that just flat out are not true, and yet they have uh, taken such root, they're at such a foundational level That they are producing fruit. It's just icky, disgusting, unhelpful fruit. And rather than just adding on more understanding of who God is, we're doubling back to maybe process some of those things that we've come to believe about God that aren't true and what would it look like to erase those from the equation? What would it look like to allow the light to shine on some of those untruths and uh Maybe squash out some ground that the enemy has taken in our understanding of of who God is. You might just consider for just a second, not just the qualities or characteristics that you have come to believe about God, that you know that you know that you know are true. But allow yourself for just a moment the freedom to process some things that maybe on a weak moment or a weak season or what not, where you, you go, you know what, I think I might actually believe this about God, even though I'm not sure that it's true. I'm gonna read through a handful of things that are gonna be up here on the screen, and I'm just gonna tell you right off the bat, these are all untrue about God. But just stop and pause as I read through and wonder, contemplate, have I ever kinda, somewhere in me, thought that this was true? When it actually wasn't. Take a look. God is always ready to zap me. (laughs) God is tolerant of any behavior. God is a wimp. God makes me pay him back for everything that he's done for me. God's just a cosmic Santa Claus. God is indifferent to suffering. God is impossible to please. God cannot see what I do. God is always angry and not the righteous way. God can't defeat evil. God doesn't love. God keeps track of all my wrongs. God isn't fair. God is distant. God loves punishing me even for one mistake. God changes with the times. Maybe you think God is imaginary. Or God is just up to my interpretation. And honestly, if he's up to my interpretation, then he's probably up to yours too. If any of those take some root in your belief about who God is, I guarantee you it's going to lead somewhere and it's not going to be healthy. It's not going to be good for you. Any place where an enemy establishes a lie, a distortion of the truth, especially with regard to the character and nature of God, it's going to lead somewhere miserable, hurtful, tragic for you and probably for the people around you. What is default for most of us, I know it is for me, is this. When it comes to my understanding of God, default for me is to bring God down to my level and put God on my terms. It is not for me to think of him, think on him, consider him as he has said he is. I try to put him down on my terms there's a, a pastor, author, theologian named A.W. Tozer. He was born in the late 1800s. He died in the early 1960s. Prolific author, phenomenal theologian and thinker. And my goodness, if you really want to get messed up in the best way possible, read a book called The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. You'll probably need to read about three or four times if you're like me, and it'll knock you down a couple steps, but in a good way. Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. He he said this, the idolatrous heart assumes that God is other than he is and substitutes for the true God one made after its own likeness. So here's the temptation is an absolute reversal of what God intended back in Genesis in creation knowing that you and I were made in his image. What the enemy likes to do is to substitute out the real one true God for one made in our image. One that we have designed, one that we have packaged, one that is up to influence by our personal preference and so this is something we've got to have a conversation about. It's something we've got to really wrestle with and process through on a, on a massive level. The enemy is going to use a whole lot of different tactics to try to get us to believe lies about the character and nature of God. At a fundamental level, I think he attacks that maybe more than anything else. Because if we are not in tune with who God really is... I can tell you this, you cannot sing what we sang a few moments ago, blessed assurance. You don't have assurance about anything if you don't know if it's the truth. If it's a bunch of lies and there's no assurance to it. And the enemy would love for you to stay there. He'd love to take trauma in your life and have that skew your picture of God He'd love to take cultural values in your life and skew your picture of God. He'd love to take a family sort of situation and skew your picture of who God is. He'd love to take unhealthy church situations or teaching and have that skew your picture of who God is. At its base form and what we're going to take a look at today, I know these two things about the enemy. If the enemy can create confusion about what is and isn't God's word, if he can create confusion about what is and what isn't God's word, the word of God, he's gonna win. And if he can create confusion about who is or isn't an accurate picture of God, like people around us, then he's gonna take some ground. Let, let me explain, if you have your Bible, open up to the book of Acts chapter 17. We're gonna be there this weekend and next weekend. And I was, I was blown away, there's too much to get through in, in one Sunday, so we'll continue it and wrap up this chapter next weekend. The book of Acts is a book of history. You know, in the Bible, there's different types of literature. Some of the books of your Bible are poetry, Some of them are prophecy. Some of them are historical literature. Some of them are are letters written. And and you've gotta remember that when we read these different books of the Bible, they come with different interpretive sorts of things that we need to keep in mind. You don't read poetry the same as you read history, do you? You don't read prophecy the same as you read somebody else's letter that they wrote to you. And Acts is history. It's in a historic account of what took place as the church, as we come to know it, started to explode. The gospel spread. Now, does history ever repeat itself? You bet it does. Does it always repeat itself? No. But there are some things that we could learn, and I was reading through this and just honestly quite blown away by what's taking place here, in the first century, and some of the parallels are what's going on with us today. It's at least interesting to me. And seeing what the enemy was up to. And seeing what God's people, how they were responding at the same time. Acts 17, look at verse 1. It says, then they traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia and came to Thessalonica. Where there was a Jewish synagogue. As usual, Paul went to the synagogue. He he was a Jewish man, highly trained, who had his life turned around by Jesus. You think he had an about face with regard to an understanding of the character and nature of God when he came face to face with Jesus? Big time. But he's still got a heart for other Jewish people. And where are they congregated? Well, in the synagogues. And so he goes in, listen, as usual, Paul went on to the synagogue and on on three Sabbath days, reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and showing that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This is Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah. Then some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, including a great number of God-fearing Greeks. It wasn't just Jewish people that responded, but Gentiles, Greeks too, as well as a number of the leading women of the city. Now, what's what's blowing me away here is this. Paul goes into, in this particular, a, a religious culture. Do you know if any religious cultures can ever go a little sideways? Have you ever heard of a religious culture um, maybe being used by uh, the enemy? You think about how many different religious cultures there are from Christianity to Islam to uh, Mormonism to uh, Jehovah's Witness to New Age to you name it. There are a bunch of religious cultures and at its foundation, and you can kind of see it with what Paul is facing here with the Jewish people. When it comes to religious culture, the enemy absolutely loves to stir up some confusion here with regard to the word of God. There is a twisting of the scriptures that the enemy has done for quite some time with the Jewish people. Now what does Paul do? for these Jewish people in their culture, the Old Testament is what scriptures, they believed. The Old Testament is what the Jews revered. And so, yet their understanding of it had been twisted over time. That they really weren't in tune with the absolute truth of what these scriptures were all about. I understand that. Have you ever read your Bible? Not all of it's easy to understand, is it? So before we wag a finger at the Jewish people, I mean, just look at ourselves. The Bible's not always easy to understand. But they had to the enemy get in there and twist their understanding of it. And so what Paul does is he goes in and he begins to reason from the scriptures. He, He knows that they revere the Old Testament and so he opens the Old Testament he teaches the Old Testament. He wants them to know the true God. And so he goes to the Word of God, but he brings clarity to it. He connects the dots for them in ways that they hadn't had the dots connected. And this is a phenomenal thing. He walks, I'm sure, through passages in the Old Testament and then makes a bridge to what? Jesus, the Messiah. In particular, Jesus, the cross, and the resurrection. Which, by the way, if you want a really great summary of the character and the nature of Almighty God, look at Jesus, the cross, and the resurrection. You're going to learn an awful lot about who God is, what he's really like. We'll talk more about that next week. But he opens up these scriptures and he connects the dots through the Old Testament scriptures and points them to how the Messiah has been predicted and promised in their scriptures. And oh, by the way, he's already come. He's already died on the cross and he's already risen from the grave. He's trying to untwist that which the enemy had twisted. In our church, in the church of Jesus, we have to be really mindful about the word of God. We have to be mindful where the enemy would get in and twist it, even in our own understanding. Knowing the enemy loves to mess with that. Well, then look, as it continues on, verse 5. But the Jews became jealous. Why are they jealous? Well, because non-Jews were now having a, a belief in Jesus and charting a whole different course. And they brought together, I love this, some scoundrels from the marketplace. That's such a great descriptor. Now, my goodness, God forbid when religious people get together with scoundrels from the marketplace. I can tell you where that's going to head. It's not going to be anywhere great. They formed a mob and started a riot in the city attacking Jason's house. Now, Jason would have been a a Jewish man who put his faith and trust in Christ and had invited other Christians into his home. That causes a stir. Attacking Jason's house, they searched for them to bring them out to the public assembly. When they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city officials shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here too. And Jason has received them as guests. They are all acting contrary to Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, Jesus, The Jews stirred up the crowd and the city officials who heard these things. So, taking a security bond from Jason and the others, they released them. The enemy loves to stir up confusion. He's already stirred up confusion with regard to what is the word of God and what isn't the word of God. The Old Testament scriptures, what do they really mean? What do they not mean? And now we see it ratcheted up just another notch. Two things taking place. The enemy stirs up confusion about the character and nature of God by creating confusion about the people of God. We have all these cliches and phrases that we use now as the church. You're the only Jesus somebody knows. So when people look at you, what do they see? You're the only Bible some people will ever read. So what do they understand about God's word by watching you, listening to you? Well, cliche is one thing, but there's something to those. Uh, in general, we, we like to base our understanding of God on other people. Make it even more complicated God has made us, followers of Jesus, the bride of Christ. We are his reflection. We are his body to a watching world at this particular moment in history. And so how we operate does reflect an awful lot on our creator. Oh, God help us. You know? Because there is so much out there that gets miscommunicated about the character and nature of God through us. No wonder people have a hard time understanding who God is when they try to look at his people. Now, in this particular case, was Jason and his friends, the believers that they let in, were they going to lead a revolt? Were they going to be rebellious? Were they going to light stuff on fire? Probably not. If they're really following Jesus, then these people will be better citizens, not worse. And they're going to follow Jesus in the way that they handle themselves, even under persecution, which I think is interesting that Jason offered up his own bail, even though he hadn't done anything wrong. But the enemy loves to stir up confusion about who God is by... His people, who were his people? Was it the Jews? Was it these Christians that we don't really know anything about? I'm confused. Yeah, the enemy likes when we're confused. Who reflects God really? And then, I think the enemy loves to stir up confusion with another set of people, our leaders. Anytime that the enemy can confuse us about King Jesus versus King Caesar... He's going to win some ground in our life. Can I tell you this? King Jesus is in a category all by himself. But any time a king, a president, a pop culture king or queen rises to influence and fame, what do people do? They follow them. Some of them even worship them. Because there's something wired in us to look to the most prominent, most significant, most popular, most powerful. And then I think somewhere subconsciously we go, oh, they're like that, maybe God's like that. And the enemy would love to keep us confused when we correlate King Jesus to President so-and-so or dictator so-and-so or social media influencer so-and-so. When There's not even a close comparison. Jesus is in a category all by himself. But when the enemy wins is when people that don't know God, they don't know the truth, go, oh. God's like them. Eh, No thanks. (laughs) And so for us to figure out who God is, is foundational in as much as the more anchored we are into the true nature and character of God, then my prayer is that the true nature and character of God will show up in a true way in my life and in your life. And rather than more lies, more harm being disseminated, more goodness of the true character and nature of God will get disseminated. Okay, last passage. Look at this. Chapter uh, chapter 17, verse 10. Here's a good example. As soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas off to Berea, it was nearby. On arrival, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. The people here, listen, were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica. Since they welcomed the message, listen, with eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so, the things that Paul was teaching. Consequently, many of them believed, including a prominent A number of prominent Greek women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica found out that God's message had been proclaimed by Paul at Berea, they came there too, agitating and disturbing the crowds. Isn't it amazing what lengths the enemy will go to to just confuse the truth about who God is? Then the brothers immediately sent Paul away to go to the sea, but Silas and Timothy stayed on there. Why? Paul had a mission to continue, but there was also a mission to stay put. There were disciples to be made. And so Timothy and, and Silas stay back. Those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving instructions for Silas and Timothy to come to him as quickly as possible, then they departed What I would hope and pray as you and I are continuing, I don't care if maybe you're here today and you go, I I don't really know if I believe in God. All the way to, I've been walking with God for a very long time. Here's my prayer for you and my prayer for me. That you and I would have the same spirit that the Bereans had. They would have an eagerness of heart with regard to the truth are you are you eager to know the truth is your heart open and eager for the truth and then is your mind discerning enough to go back and examine the scriptures on your own here's what i would love is that you would right now that you would ask The Holy Spirit to give you an eager heart and a discerning mind with regard to knowing God, the one true God. Would you ask the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, please, regardless of where I'm at in my journey with you, would you give me an eager heart to know the truth? And then God, would you give me a discerning mind to to open up your word to get to know you better, know what's really true about you. Would you pray that? If you're not a believer, would you be as bold to pray that anyway? I'm eager. God, I don't know if you're there, but I, I'm, I'm praying to you. Would you give me an eagerness for the truth and a discerning mind? with regard to what is written in your word here. Take 15 seconds. Actually stop and pray right now for that. Amen. You guys, I think that there's obviously a place for teachers of the word of God. Um, There's obviously a place for scholars, brilliant women and men who write about God's word. But I'll tell you this. There's really nothing more special and more powerful then when you and the Holy Spirit that God's given you sit down and open your own Bible, the Holy Spirit of God will open your mind and your heart to what is true in the Word of God when you're earnestly seeking Him. And there's such huge power in it. I hope that we, Landon, myself, whoever is up here, that we are accurate with the Word of God more often than not when we teach it. But what I hope more than that is that you have your own relationship where you get to know God, where the Holy Spirit and you sit down with the Word of God and you study it on your own. Some powerful things can happen that that will drown out some of the voices of trauma and family values and cultural values and personal preference. And I thought it was this and I thought it was that. And instead, you sit down with the word of God and let the Holy Spirit teach you. My goodness, how much God wants to reveal to you. He's revealed so much about himself through his word. And we're wandering around and going, I don't really know. I don't really know if he's around. I don't know how I'd get to know him. I don't know. I don't really know if I believe this or I really thought this. And I don't really know how to combat that. And we're just we'll sit down. This is phenomenal right here. This Bible, God's word is living and active. Jesus incarnate was the word become flesh a tremendous amount was revealed about God in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And you go, well, you know what? I, I, don't, I don't really know if I believe that this is true in the first place, so I don't really care what the Bible says. Ah, oh, I'm glad you said that. Because um, some of you have already been through this sort of thing before, and if you're already a Christian, then maybe use this to kind of reignite some of what you find to be True and compelling about God's word, draw you back to it. Others of you that are still on the fence and going, you know, I don't really know like if this is true, especially compared to like my feelings or my thoughts or what everybody else is saying right now. God's word is reliable. And especially when you stack it up against other ancient literature, you stack it up against other religious writings. And you've got some real reconciling to do. You've got some processing to do. God's word is reliable. There's a bunch of things that we could get into, but here's two questions to kick us off. Reliability of God's word. When it comes down to it, there's a bunch of things you could examine. Here's two. Do the manuscripts that we, we don't have the originals, we don't have what Moses wrote originally, or what John wrote originally, or what Paul wrote originally. What we do have are copies. So are the copies that we do have accurate to the original, or have they been monkeyed and twisted up and messed up over time? Are they different than what John wrote, or what Paul wrote, or what Moses wrote? Do we have accurate copies of the originals? And then second question, not just are they accurate, but is this true? Do these documents speak truth? And now we're getting into a testimony sort of thing. When we're talking about truth, it's almost like a court case where we put God's word on trial and we build a case, we build evidence to establish the truth. Not like God needs us to do that, but for your own heart and your own mind, I think it can be helpful. So is it accurate, is God's word, do we have accurate copies of the originals? Did you know that just the New Testament has more copies, earlier copies, and better supported copies than the other 10 best ancient pieces of literature combined? Homer, I'm not talking about Simpson, I'm talking about like the Iliad, Homer, Plato, Julius Caesar, we have their writings today that we take as truth. Why? Well, because we, we, we don't have their originals either. We have copies. Now, with them, Homer, there's a 500 year gap between Homer wrote it and then the copies start showing up. 500 years is a long time for things to get twisted and moved around. Then, we've only got 643 copies. What we are actually comparing, there's just not that many of. Uh, Plato, a 1200 year gap between when he wrote it and when the copies show up. There's nobody living 1200 years later that was around when Plato was around. There's nobody to corroborate this or that. Even 70 years later, it's hard time to remember even if you were alive when that happened. And we've only got seven copies of what he, the substance of what he actually, we've only got a handful of copies to compare against each other to go, do these line up? Julius Caesar, a thousand year gap and only 10 copies. The New Testament alone, somewhere between a 25 year gap for some, and as max as a 50 year gap between when they were written And when the copies show up, plenty of people still alive to validate, yes, this is what occurred. Yes, this is what we saw happen. Yes, this is the the truth. And not just 600 copies or 10 copies or seven copies, but over 5,000 copies, some scraps, pieces, some full manuscripts, a whole letter, Isaiah, they found a whole entire scroll of the entire book of Isaiah. And there's an accuracy there. Did you know this? Of all the copies that we have of the scriptures, they've gone through, there's only 200,000 errors. Now that sounds like a lot. There are errors, though, of grammar and punctuation. So out of all of these thousands of copies, 200,000 errors of grammar and punctuation. 400 of those 200,000 changed the nature of the passage. So 200,000, you've got 199,000, you do the math, there's 400 less than that, that changed the passage, but did not change any article of doctrine or article of the faith. In other words, of of all of the scriptures that we have, there is 0.5% of them are within question and none of them have to do with any area of doctrine with regard to the character and nature of God or salvation, anything like that. There's an awful lot of accuracy when it comes to, we could spend the next couple of weeks and many of you are smarter than I at this and we'll have you do it instead. Is it accurate to the original copies? It's an overwhelming yes. So then is this true? Can you go to God's word and believe that this is more true than what you feel? Can you believe that this is more true than what the culture says? Can you believe that this is more true than what your trauma says? Can you believe that this is more true than than anything that's going on uh, globally? Can you believe it's more true than other religious documents? Well, you've got some thinking to do. There's so much testimony to the truth of God's word. Here's a handful of testimonies. The Bible has early testimony, eyewitness testimony, coherence with dissimilarity testimony, ethical trustworthy testimony, enemy testimony, embarrassing testimony, extra biblical testimony, and excruciating testimony, to name a few. And, and these are all testimony. This is all evidence to the truth of God's word. Early testimony. Early testimony works because the more early the testimony comes, the more accurate it is, right? If something happens today, I'll remember it really well tomorrow. And so would you. Give it five years. Give it five weeks. We might not remember as well. The Bible has plenty of early testimony It has eyewitness testimony, which is typically the best to see what actually happened. Eyewitnesses. But to that point is the next one. Coherence with dissimilarity. Those are big words, but here's all that it means. When you have multiple independent eyewitnesses to an event, that makes it more robust testimony. If only one of you saw something from one vantage point... Okay, it still might be true, but how much more true if there were five of us at an intersection all in different places when there was a car crash? One of you was in the car, one of you was on the sidewalk, one of you was in your office on the building looking down and watched it happen. One of you heard some stuff, one of you's a man, one of you's a woman. Now you've got dissimilar perspectives with a common thread, That together gives a lot more robust testimony and the Bible has dissimilarity but yet coherence in its testimony. It has ethical testimony, trustworthy testimony. It turns out character matters. When somebody brings an eyewitness to the stand and they're not credible, they'll get eaten alive. But when they have character and trustworthiness over a track record. Scripture has even that. There's enemy testimony. The Bible has enemy testimony. Meaning it's that thing of, it's one thing when your mom says you're brave, it's another thing when the bully says you're brave. And there's people who were not for Jesus or God in the Old and New Testament. There's plenty of testimony to them proclaiming about God, their interactions with God. There's embarrassing testimony. This is my favorite one. It's that weird thing of when you're writing something, the author who includes something embarrassing about themselves is usually speaking the truth. Because why would you include it otherwise? There's nothing for you in there. To include mistakes that you made. To include how dim-witted the disciples were. To include this embarrassing testimony even about Jesus that is recorded in the Bible that other people thought he was crazy or out of his mind. It's embarrassing testimony. It ends up proving to be so true extra-biblical testimony. That's testimony, evidence outside of the Bible that corroborate a whole lot of things. You know, a couple of years ago, I got to go to Israel, and it just blew me away. This is gonna sound so stupid because I've known Jesus for so long, but we we got there, and it was just a day or two in, and I'm looking around, and I'm going, oh, this is a real place. <laughs> this isn't some fanciful story fairy tale, Narnia sort of thing that sounds, I mean, pretty intricate that they've established. I'm like, there's that mountain that they talk about and, the, and there's that river that they talk about and there's that city that, and here's where, and it was all coming together. There's a guy named Josephus that was a Jewish historian and his stuff corroborates stuff that was going on historically in the, in the Bible There's excruciating testimony. And that's basically testimony that comes from witnesses who are willing to die rather than recant what they believe. I find that super compelling. But there's a lot of people in different camps that would die for something that they believe. But the thing with the disciples is that there was nothing in it for them. Their motives. You know, it, when it comes down to it, there's only money, sex, and pride that motivate most human beings to do something vile or disgusting or wrong. Those tend to be the big three. And none of those came into play for the disciples. There, there was no girlfriend in it for doing this. There certainly was no money in it. And there wasn't any pride in it either. In fact, it would be the opposite. It would be a humbling of them and laying down their life. And Jesus himself was excruciating testimony. The word means out of the cross, excruciating, excrucia. By most accounts, tradition says that most of the disciples... Went on to die a martyr's death because of their belief in Jesus. There's an awful lot of testimony. There's an awful lot to consider as the truth. And so, what I'm hoping in my own journey, I guess I'm just really hoping for every single one of you, kind of regardless of where you're at in the spectrum, is that we would take this really seriously. God's word is both accurate and true. And he's wooing us and compelling us and screaming to us through his word daily to say, if you've got an eager heart and a discerning mind, I want to show you who I really, truly am. You can know the true me. You can know what's true about me. And so maybe you do that this week. Maybe here's your assignment. Here's your homework. Would you open up your Bible this week and pick two to three psalms every day? I don't care which one, any of them. Open the book of Psalms. Read two to three psalms per day. And as you read, jot down qualities and characteristics that God's word in the Psalms is telling you is true about the character and nature of God. Do that every day until we gather again. And you'll have quite a list of these qualities and characteristics that are true about our God. So that when you feel this way, you come back to your list and you say, "God, this is how I feel, but here's what I know to be true." This is what the culture' is saying, but here's what I know to be true. Here's what my trauma is saying, but here's what I know to be true. Make a list of these attributes that you and the Holy Spirit find together this week in the Psalms. And then at the top of your paper, write, here's what I know to be true about you, God, and then stick it somewhere that you can see and reference. Watch what God does with it. He wants to be known in all of his goodness and truth. I think that's why he gives us communion as another means of knowing him. Jesus established communion for the church as a way to remember the truth of who Jesus is, his love for you, his provision for you, his sacrifice for you. And often as we eat and drink that we would remember him Because unfortunately, it's easy to forget. And I know that it gets tough sometimes to feel like you do this every single week or whatever. And, you know, that's between you and the Lord. Just because we offer it every single week doesn't mean you have to. But there's such a reminder for me that at the core foundation, what God really wants with me and you is communion, relationship, fellowship. Especially when we really know who he is. And communion's just another reminder to do that. And scripture also tells us it's another reminder for us to examine ourselves. I can't examine myself enough, especially in light of who God is. So we're going to invite you to come and take the elements. They're on either side. If you're feeling led today, take them back to your seat. You'll find the bread represents his body, which is broken for you. and The juice represents his blood that was shed for you. Let them be an accurate descriptor of some very, very true things about the provision and love of our God through Jesus for you. And so, Father, we uh, thank you. Thank you for being patient with us. Forgive us for the times where we have brought you down to our terms, our level, confused you with maybe other people, even prominent people. But help us untwist what is true about you and help us, Father, to uh, know that while some people may give us a window into who you are, it still pales into comparison to your goodness and your grace and your mercy. And Help us, God, sift sift through the stuff that Maybe we've come to believe that we need to unlearn and help us be aware of these tactics the enemy uses. But then prompt us often, Lord, just to sit down with your word and you, the precious Holy Spirit, guide us to what's really true. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen get that, you can take on your own.
0: great word and what a great reminder for us. It is so easy for us to have stacked up within our hearts and minds, history of brokenness that has tainted or tilted the perspective of who God actually is. And um, I loved Ron's takeaway of being able to take um, one or two Psalms every single day for the next seven days and to read them and to write down the characteristics of God. Man, what a what a great challenge for us to just dive in, to be reminded. It is so true. It is so easy for us to forget how good he is, how faithful he he, he is, to really anchor into the characteristics and the truths of who God is, um, whether it be because of culture, family, whatever those things may be, and how we so desperately need to be reminded. And so I just challenge you, I encourage you this week to do just that, to read one or two psalms, maybe three psalms every single day. Usually they're not, they're not very long. So sit down, take a moment, read through them and write down the characteristics of God and keep that, keep that in a safe place. And whenever you're feeling bummed, whenever you're feeling adversity or challenges, whatever it may be, uh, may this list be a reminder to you of how good God is. So Thanks for joining us My name is Nate Huss If this is your first time listening So glad you're able to join us Um, If you haven't yet already Jump over to restorationaz.org Learn a little bit more About who we are What we're about Um, If you haven't had a chance To join us in person um, We meet here in Prescott, Arizona You can check the website for times We're getting ready to jump To three services here soon Um, But yeah Love it Thankful that you could join us And um, as always We close every week By saying this Remember Jesus truly is the only one who's trustworthy always. So press on as we continue to practice the way of Jesus.